is looking at the prayers of Paul. Praying with Paul is the name of our, our series. Last week we started in, in 2 Thessalonians. And this week we turned back a, a book, a letter to the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. And, and we're looking at the prayers of Paul as a way to help us in our own prayers. And in particular to help us in our praying for others. And that title assumes something, and Paul assumes something, and that assumption is that we should be praying for others. You know, sometimes we might think that prayer is just a, a, a me and God conversation, and like kids on the playground, when someone tries to interrupt the conversation they're having with their best friend, they just want that person to leave. This is an A and B conversation, and you can just see your way on out of it. And, and sometimes we have that idea, oh, man, Harvey's bringing me a stack of Bibles. This one will work. Thank you. But sometimes we think prayer is all about me. I mean, after all, we have enough things that we can be praying about that, that for our own selves. Or perhaps we buy into the idea or, or the, the kind of the worldly idea of just prayer is kind of a meditation. And it's, it's all about self-improvement. And certainly prayer is a conversation between us and God. And, and certainly we need to be praying for our own needs and our own self. When I, when I start my prayer times, that's where I begin. I begin with a meditating on a verse about the gospel, just remembering who I am in Christ. And then I, I pray for a, a particular a list of sins that I want to see rid of my life. And then I, I pray through some of the um, lists that Paul gives of characters, that, characteristics that should be true of, of elders and pastors. And then I go a little bigger and I pray for family. But then I begin to include church family and I just get bigger and bigger. And we should be praying for ourselves, but we should not only be praying for ourselves. We should be praying for others. But how should we pray for each other? And what should we be praying for each other? Those are the questions that we are seeking to find as we kind of eavesdrop on Paul's prayers. And this week again, we're going to look at First Thessalonians Chapter 3, and the prayer is at the end of First Thessalonians. We're going to look at more than just the prayer, but we're going to start uh, just by reading uh, the prayer itself. And that's verses 9 through 13. First Thessalonians 3, 9 through 13. Paul writes this, prays this, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Pause and pray before we look at this prayer. Father, we do ask for Your help. That's why we stop after reading Your Word, because we recognize we need Your help to understand it, to do more than just read it with our eyes and hear it with our ears but we need to apply it to our lives. And for that, we need your spirit to do the hard work. We need your spirit to write your word on our hearts. So, Father, would you send your spirit 
here among us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, last week we looked at one of Paul's prayer, and as we did, prayers, and as we did, we looked at the mindset of Paul's prayer, behind that prayer of Paul. And we saw that when Paul prayed, and there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul was praying with the end in mind. As Paul prayed for the Thessalonians, he, he prayed remembering that the, the end was coming, that Jesus was going to return. And because he prayed with the end in mind, it changed how he prayed and it changed what he prayed for. But this week we turn from Paul's mind and turn to his heart. And we see that as Paul entered his prayer closet, not only does he do so with something on his mind, but he does so with something in his heart. And that is love. Paul had a love for Jesus, but Paul also had a deep love for Jesus' people. He loved Christians. He loved people. Paul prayed for people because he loved people. The title of this morning's message is a little bit longer than what I usually like, but it, it captures what I'm hoping for us to see in this prayer, and that is that praying for others should be a fruit of our love for others. In this prayer of Paul, we see prayer as the product, as the as the overflow, as the result of his love for others. Love for fellow Christians produced a prayer for fellow Christians. And it's that the two parts of that title, Paul's love and Paul's prayer, that will be kind of the two main headings this morning. First, we look at Paul's love. We see it hinted at at the first verse we read, but we really need to to go back further to see the love that Paul has for these Thessalonians. Why does Paul pray for them? He prays for them because he loves them. I don't know about you, but when I think of the Apostle Paul, Paul as a lover isn't probably the first thing that comes to my mind. When When we think of Paul... Uh, we tend to think of Paul as an intellectual. We, we think of him and we know he was a very educated man. We can read part of his, some of his letters and, and we can agree with Peter where Peter writes in second Peter says, sometimes I am not quite sure what Paul is writing about. And that's an encouragement to me when I read that because sometimes I'm reading in Romans and I'm, I'm just not quite sure what Paul has just said and I gotta go back and, and re-read it. But when you read Paul's letters, you find another picture of Paul. Yes, he was an intellectual. Yes, he could debate with the best of them. But what you see in Paul's letters is at the heart of Paul was a man who deeply loved people. When we think of an intellectual, we perhaps think of a loner. Paul was anything but a loner. Just read Romans chapter 16 and the list of names. Read the the missionary travels of Paul and the importance he places on other people. Paul was not a loner. When we think of an intellectual, we might think of someone who likes to spend their time alone in their office and with their books. And, And Paul loves his books. At the end of one of his letters, he says, don't forget to bring me my books. But Paul was anything but cold and distant. And we see that in this letter. We see it in some of his letters, but particularly in this letter of First Thessalonians. We see this love that he has. Notice what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says this in the ESV. So being affectionately desirous of you. Being affectionately desirous of you. Now, yesterday we were at the ball field all day. We had opening day at the ball field and where I was standing was behind the dugout. And when they went to do the national anthem, 
I kind of had to stop and look around because the national anthem was really well done. And I felt, I said, if I close my eyes, I feel like I'm at Camden Yards. I mean, it was excellent. And then from out, out of the dugout comes the one who sang the national anthem. And he looked like he belonged in Bridgeville, Delaware. He had this big old nice beard and he was, he was, I don't want to use it. He was, he was, he was a redneck. He was a hillbilly. He was, he was a good old boy. And when we read this, we kind of think, wait a second, is this, and I thought, wait a second, was that really the guy who sang? When I read this, I think, wait a second, is this really Paul? Did, did I accidentally open up to Song of Solomon? Because that's what this sounds like. The NIV simply says, because we loved you, but that language is not strong enough. The language that Paul is using is that he is really affectionately desirous of the Thessalonians. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament, and it refers to a, de, a, de, a strong and persistent desire. It means to have a yearning love for someone. Paul says, I have a yearning love for you. We see later in Paul's, in this chapter, we see his love again in verse 17, where Paul says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, but not in heart, You're still in my heart, even though you're not before my person. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Again, do you hear the overwhelming love that Paul has for the Thessalonians? Now, in verse 8, I kind of criticized the NIV's translation, but let me commend it in verse 17, because in verse 17, the way the NIV says, when we were orphaned from you. And that's the actual word that Paul uses in the Greek. It's the word for an orphan. It's the word that means to be abandoned by your parents. It's a word that describes a a, a separation between a child and his or her, her parents. And Paul says, I feel like an orphan because I'm not with you. Again, what strong language. Earlier in this letter, jumping back just a verse from where we were in verse 8 and verse 7, Paul says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In verse 11 and 12, he says, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted and encouraged you. And then in verse 14, he says, for brothers became, you became, for you brothers became imitators of the church of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And if I had my Bible that I preached from and used in my devotional, I noticed as I was studying this week, I have in my margins that somewhere, sometime when I read this, I noticed those three terms. The way that Paul refers to himself in the term of a nursing mother and a, and a, an encouraging and exhorting father and a fellow brother. Paul is using family language. And that's because, of course, they are family to him. Not biological, but a family that has a bond that is even stronger and greater than biology. And that's a spiritual family. I say it often, but I I think we often need the reminder of this, that if you want to call God Father, then you have to be able to call your brothers and sisters, your fellow Christians brothers and sisters. You, You cannot call God Father and then disown fellow Christians. You must call them brother or sister. You cannot have one without the other. The Bible says that we have been adopted to the family of God. And that not only describes our relationship with God, but it describes our relationship with fellow Christians. We are part of the same family, which means that there is a bond that exists between us. 
And I said it's a stronger bond because while you can choose whether or not you're going to love your biological siblings, the Bible tells us that you do not have that choice. You do not have that choice of love when it comes to your spiritual brothers and sisters. John 15, verse 12, Jesus says, But this command, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice the language there. This is the Lord Jesus saying, speaking this to us. This is my, not suggestion. This is my, not a, not a good idea. Not, not, this would be really great if you guys got along. But this is my commandment that you love one another. In fact, he goes on, or he says in this same gospel, John, John records that this is how you reveal to the world that you are my disciples, that you love one another. It's a commandment. Romans 12 verse 10 puts our love for each other in this way. Love one another. Again, command with brotherly affection, not a cold, distant love. Then outdo one another in showing honor, a competition of honor. I often read that verse at a wedding. Our marriages should be a, a competition almost of honoring the other. Our churches should be a competition of, of loving, honoring the other. First John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. How do you know that you have been born of God? You've been born again. You've, you've experienced salvation. How do you, how do you show that you know God? By loving one another. But how does this show up in our lives? Let me point to three ways that it shows up in our lives in the verses leading up to Paul's prayer. Again, we're looking at Paul's love that, that overflows into his prayer. And the, the first way that it shows up is that Paul has a longing to be with them. The first way this love of, for, of Paul for the Thessalonians is that he longs to be with them. Verse 17 again. Since we were torn away, since we were orphaned from you, brothers, for a short time in person and not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Looked at that word torn away. That word, that, that phrase in the ESV, a short time. Literally, if you translate it, it's the season of an hour. The two Greek words that are there are aura, which is, which is the word for hour, and kairos, which is the word for season. Paul says, Paul is literally saying, I've only been away from you for an hour, but oh, how I miss you. We read last week in Acts chapter 17 and saw where Paul and Silas and Timothy planted the church in Thessalonica. It happened at the beginning of Acts chapter 17. After that, Paul and they're chased out of Thessalonica by an angry mob of Jews. They, they go to Berea. The, the mob then chases them again out of Berea and Paul is alone in Athens. He sends Timothy and Silas to check on the churches. Paul is alone in Athens. And then from Athens, he goes to Corinth, where in Corinth he stays for 18 months, which the way it's written implies that the other stays were very short. And it's in those 18 months that Paul writes First and Second Thessalonians. So it has not been a long time, maybe a few weeks, a few months at most, since Paul was in the church. But he says in verse 17, it feels like ages. I miss you. These words in verse 17, and endeavor eagerly and with great desire, they all describe the depth of Paul's longing to be with the Christians in Thessalonica. In verse 18, Paul says, in fact, we've tried to get to you. I've tried, but Satan has hindered us. 
Now, when we read the travel log in, in Acts, we don't see any evidence of how Satan hindered Paul from from getting to the Thessalonians. We don't we don't know how that took place. But Paul says that somehow he has been hindered. He's he's not been able to get to them, and he attributes that to Satan. And this word hindered it, it means to present prevent the progress or accomplishment of, and and it was used for a, as a military term, and it was used to describe how armies would put obstacles in the roads to keep the opposing army from from reaching them. And they would break up the roads so the, the, so the chariots and the armies couldn't march across. They would often dig these big trenches across the road so that they couldn't cross them to get to them. And, and Paul says, Satan, he has, he has broken up the road between me and you. He has dug trenches so that I cannot get to you. And, and notice in that, that not only do you see the longing of Paul, but you see the fear of Satan. Satan knows what happens when Christians get together. Satan knows how important it is for the church to be together. He knows how our gatherings together is a threat to him and his ways. So he will do whatever he can to stop it. But again, notice what Satan has meant for evil. What has he, what has God done? Now, Paul says, I can't get to you, so I'm writing you this letter. This letter of First Thessalonians and and the the blocking of of Satan for, for keeping Paul from the Thessalonians Thessalonians has led to these two letters being written, these two letters being put into the Bible, and these two letters being used to encourage the saints for thousands of years. What Satan meant for evil, God has turned for incredible good. Imagine the number of people I imagine who have sat under sermons from these and have come to salvation and the kingdom of God has grown and not been weakened. Satan used a pandemic to keep us apart for several months last year. And we can be dismayed about that and, and we should be in many ways because we know how important our gatherings are for us. But don't miss that what God, don't miss what God can do even when Satan appears to have won. We now have a live stream we have reached people during this pandemic that we would not have been able to reach otherwise. But we also need to admit that Satan has, in fact, used this pandemic for his purposes as well. We, we all know people who have walked away from church and have walked away from faith through this, have lost interest in being at church. It was kind of nice staying at home and they've not come back. But Paul says, because I love you, I desire and I long to be with you. We see the same longing in the book of Acts where when the Holy Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost, there was this great desire of those who are filled with the Spirit to be together. At the end of Acts chapter 2, the, the Spirit-filled Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. There is a, there is a longing to be together. There should be a longing to be together for God's people. Paul longed to be with them. Paul, Paul desired, the second thing we see in these verses is that Paul desired to be of spiritual benefit to them. Again, this is shaping what Paul prays for, and that is his love for them creates in him a desire to benefit them. Notice what he says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. 
He says, when we could stand it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. Now, Paul uses the word we. But if I read Acts 17, at least part of his time in Athens, it wasn't a we, it was a it was a me, it was an I. Paul, at least in terms of Paul, Silas and Timothy, the leaders of the team, Paul was alone. He sent Pilate, he sent Silas to check on another church. And then he says, when I could stand it no longer, I, I sent Timothy to you. I just had to picture Paul there in Athens. One of the largest cities of the time, one of the most godless cities of the time. Paul had just been run out of two cities, out of Thessalonica and Berea, and now he's in one that is very close to the gospel. More than ever before, I would have to think that Paul needed Timothy. He needed him. He needed him for the work that lay ahead of him, but he needed him for the encouragement and companionship. But Paul says here in this letter, I couldn't take it anymore. I had to get to you. I had to help you in some way. So I sent Timothy. I sent to you what was most precious to me. Is that not a heart, a picture of God's heart and what he has done for us in Jesus? He, he gave us what was most costly. He, he gave us his son. That love that God showed to us, we're told, is now a love that is supposed to be shown through us. A sacrificial, costly love that is done for the good of others. And the third thing we see of Paul's love is that he rejoices at the report of the Thessalonians at their faithfulness. He rejoices at their faithfulness. When Paul left the Thessalonians, they were baby Christians. He was there for maybe a few days before they was driven out of the city. And baby Christians in a hostile city, Paul is wondering how is their faith going to hold up? In chapter 3, you even see him. He mentions affliction and he says, hey, don't forget, this is normal. It's, it's normal. I warned you about this. You're going to experience afflictions. But here he, he's sitting in, in Corinth and he wonders, how, how is their faith holding up? And then Timothy comes back in verses 6 and 8. And Paul reports to them. He says, Timothy has come to us from you and he has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly. And long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Just think about that last line. Hear the language of Paul. It almost sounds like a a love letter from one lover to another. He says, "Now, now I can live knowing that you are okay. I've been holding my breath. I've been sitting on pins and needles. I've been worried sick, but now I can live knowing that you are standing fast in the faith. This is what a love for fellow believers looks like. It it looks like a longing to be with them. It looks like a a, a desire to be of spiritual blessing to them. It it looks like a, a rejoicing at the news of their faithfulness and their steadfastness. Again, though, this is the heart behind Paul's prayer. Now let's see how it what what fruit it produces in his prayer. Paul's prayer is an overflow of his love. You'll see that as we see the things he prays for and have in your back, the back of your mind, the ways that we saw him express his love for them. First of all, Paul, he, he gives thanks to God for them. 
We're going to see this over and over again as we go through Paul's letters. You're you're probably going to get tired of it, but in every single letter, Paul, he gives he gives bountiful thanks to God for them. Notice what he says in verse nine. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? This verse is a rhetorical question. You might not think about it as you're reading it, but he's asking a question. What thanksgiving, what, what, what possible thanksgiving could I give to God for the amount of joy that I have for you? How in the world could I ever thank God enough? And the answer is he can't. He can't thank God enough for them. The Thessalonians bring him this much joy and this much joy in his prayers. Do you ever find yourself overflowing with joy for fellow Christians in your prayers? I, I would guess for most of us that's rare if it, ever, if it has ever happened. The other day I experienced a, a, just a taste of this. Series has been a, a reminder to me to spend more time praying for fellow Christians. One of the ways I'm doing it for you and one of the ways I'm doing that is by going for a morning walk and there's side of benefits. I need to lose weight, so a morning walk helps with that. But I have found that walking and praying is a great way to pray. For one thing, if you're outside, you might think I'm crazy if you drive by, but I'm outside and I can talk out loud. And if, if you want to help your prayers, one of the best things you can do is pray out loud. It'll keep you focused and, and you'll find yourself praying longer. But I have found that walking, even if I'm here, walking around the sanctuary and praying loud has been a been a help and, and and going on a walk in the morning is and extends my prayers because if i walk a mile one way there's only one way to get back and that's to walk a mile the other and so there's plenty of time to pray and the way i do it is i have an app i've mentioned before on my phone called prayer mate and prayer mate just allows you to create different lists of prayers and one of the lists of prayers that i have is a list of your names and and prayer mate randomly gives me 10 to 15 names to to pray for that day and the day i was i was praying and i was thinking and praying for one of one of you and i just began to think about the way that god had used you over the past 30 years in in little ways but over that span of time little ways that have amounted to a big impact on my life and I began to rejoice. And I began to thank God for that. And it spilled over into the next name and the next name and the next name. And again, this is, is rare that we experience this joy. But Paul says we should work for this kind of joy to, to feel the joy that comes when we remember God has used fellow Christians in our lives. In his book on the prayers of Paul, D.A. Carson writes this, How much would our churches be transformed? If each of us made it a practice to thank God for others and then to tell those others what it is about them that we thank God for. That's what Paul's doing. He's telling them, I have thanked God for you and this is why. And my challenge to us is to let's find out an answer to that question. D.A. Carson asks the question, let's find out the answer. How would our church be transformed if we did this? How would our church be transformed if you thanked God for someone in your prayers and then told them that you thanked them? Thank God for them in your for a specific thing. I am thanking God for this and write them a note. But I want to encourage you, don't just write them a note, but actually pray the prayer. 
Because you're not actually thanking them. You are thanking God for them. Thank God in your prayers for them. Go through the list of names of people in our church. And as you come to a name, just think about that person. Think about the ways that God has used them and give thanks to God for them. And then write a note and write a letter, send an email, send a text and tell them, I have been thanking God for this. Imagine how our church just would overflow in love for one another and thanksgiving for one another. Both as the recipients and the one giving thanks. So I want to challenge you. Find an answer to that question. How would our church be transformed by this? Paul gives thanks to God for them then. Paul prays that they, that he might be able to strengthen them. Remember, he wanted to be a spiritual benefit to them, so now he prays that he might be a spiritual benefit to them. Verse 10, he says, We pray most earnestly day and night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Before we look at the request, notice the effort that Paul puts in his prayers. He says, I pray most earnestly. Earnestly means beyond all measure. It's the greatest word for comparison that Paul could have used. In other words, one commentator said that his prayers were intense beyond measure. He prays most earnestly and he prays night and day. Most likely this does not mean that Paul is praying 24-7. But it means that Paul has set times of prayer. He, he prays in the morning and he prays at night. And at each of those set times of prayer, he is praying earnestly for the Thessalonians. Paul was a man of prayer. But that does not mean that prayer was something that came easy or natural for him. It took work. It took effort. It took discipline. Sometimes we think that prayer should just be something that comes easily. And when it's not, we think, well, something must be wrong. And we get discouraged or we stop praying. But true prayer takes work. True prayer takes diligence. True prayer takes discipline. Set times of prayer, Paul says. In Colossians, Paul describes by the name of, of Epaphras, who was a true prayer warrior for fellow Christians. And he describes Epaphras in, in, in these ways. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That word struggle is the word agonizomi. It's the word where we get where we get our word agony. It means to exert much effort or energy conceived of as fighting or engaging in a fight or contest. He agonized in his prayers. He he fought in his prayers in his prayers for fellow Christians. Paul says part of his trials is that he has endured part of the trials that he has endured is a constant concern that he has for his for the churches which I think most of that was felt in his prayer time. Paul, Paul's prayers for the Thessalonians wore him down. But yet he continued to pray. If I can just be blunt and, and speaking my, for myself and foremost, some of us don't pray because we're flat-out wimps. We're not willing to step up to the fight. We're not willing to take on the challenge. We, we tap out at the first obstacle. 
just because Paul really loved the Thessalonians does not mean that prayer for them came easy. But because he loved them, he earnestly and diligently prayed for them night and day. Well, what did he pray? Look at the request at the end of this verse. He says, I pray that we may see you face to face to supply what is lacking in your faith. And that our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. He's praying that God would clear out and blow out all those obstacles that Satan has put in his way. But he, he wants to do so that he might supply what is lacking. That's not a negative term. It means to, to build up, to encourage, to strengthen their faith. Again, they're baby Christians and, and Paul longs to see them grow into maturity. But notice how he prays for that. He doesn't simply say, hey God, would you do that? He says, God, let me do that. God, let me strengthen and supply what is lacking in their faith. Some of us, we pray for a need to be met, and then, then we forget the way that God most often meets needs through people like you and like me. In Isaiah chapter 6, when God cries out, who, who should I send to carry this message to, to Israel? Isaiah is in a prayer time and he, he doesn't say, well, God, that's a really good question. Let's, let's pray about that for a little bit. No, he says, God, here am I. Send me. You have, you have placed this burden on me. Now send me to do something about it. What if the things on your prayer list for other people are put there, not just so that you would pray about them, but so that you would do something about them? Again, remember, Paul has said that Satan has been blocking his way. And from what we know, Paul will not get back to the Thessalonians for several years. And you might not be able to do anything about that prayer need that is in front of you. But you can continue to pray that God would make it so that you could. In small ways, in big ways, whatever ways that he would allow you to help meet that need. To be a spiritual benefit and a blessing to others. The third thing we see in the third and fourth are two petitions that Paul ends with. And the first petition is that Paul prays that their love may increase and abound. Remember from Second Thessalonians, this prayer was answered because Paul pray, praised God and gave thanks for this. But now here in First Thessalonians, he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Earlier in verse 6, Paul has said that he has already, that's one of the things Timothy reported, that they had a love for one another. But Paul's, Paul's not content with that. He, he prays that there would be more. A guy by the last name Herbert says, genuine Christian love is the one thing, the Christian life, the one thing in the Christian life which cannot be carried to excess. Genuine Christian love is the one thing in the Christian life, which cannot be carried to excess. In other words, if you want to know something that you can be praying for fellow Christians for the rest of their life and the rest of your life, it would be that they would grow in their love. The early church father, John Sostom, says this. He says, do you see, of these verses, do you see the unrestrainable madness of love that is shown by his words? Make you to increase and abound instead of cause you to grow. And he says this, we need to follow this example. Pray big, not just help us to like each other a little more or help us to put up with each other. No, Paul prays that their love for each other would be extravagant. 
But notice not only that we love each other, but that they would love others. That their love for one another within the church would flow out into the streets of Thessalonica. And that they would be known as those who love everyone. And then finally, Paul's last petition is this. Paul prays that they would be blameless and holy when Jesus returns. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This word establish it to be more marked by firm determination or resolution. One commentator, it says, said it means to be like granite, to be hard like granite. Paul prays that their hearts would be like granite towards holiness and blamelessness when Jesus returns. This word blameless means faultless and and free of guilt. One commentator said that it means that whatever charges might be made, no charges could be maintained. No charges uh, could stick. No accusations could hold water because they were blameless. An archaeologist as archaeologists have been excavating the area of Thessalonica, they've stumbled across graveyards and they've stumbled across tombstones. They've noticed that some of these tombstones in the Greek, they have this word, blameless, on the headstone. And they discovered that this, is, this was how it would signify that the grave that this tombstone marked is the grave of a Christian. They were blameless. And this is our great hope that when we stand before God because of our faith in Jesus, that when we stand before Him, Ephesians 1 says, we will be holy and blameless because we'll be seen as in Christ. But yet Paul prays that it wouldn't just show up that day, but that it would show up this day. He prays that, as he prays in Philippians, that they would be blameless and innocent, children, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I don't know about you, but I long for this to be true. To be true of me, to be true of you, to be true of this church, that we would shine like lights of holiness in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation because we are known as those who live holy lives. In his book, Devoted to God's church, St. Clair Ferguson tells the story of an elderly saint, an elderly saint in the church that grew up in his church in Northern Ireland. And I'll close with this story. But Ferguson writes that this man was a banker by profession and a lifelong bachelor. In fact, St. Clair says that he was known for his typical Celtic humor. And he'd always, they'd always ask about him being a bachelor and say, why didn't you ever get married? He said, well, the desirable was never possible. And the possible, well, it was never desirable. But this banker, he also taught Sunday school. He taught Sunday school for a group of high school boys. And in fact, he saw this as so important to his life that he declined any further job advancements that would keep him from being able to teach that class. Many of his boys distinguished themselves in various professions. An unusual number of them became ministers. And this man, he followed their ministries with interest and with ongoing encouragement. He'd write them letters and let them know he was encouraging, let him, let them know he was following them. But more than anything, he prayed for them. Sinclair writes this, 
says, when this man died, the police had to be called in to break into his house. And they found him on his knees with the prayer list of his boys open beside him. An elderly bachelor who who gives up job promotions so that he can teach a group of high school boys about the gospel. But not only does he teach them, but he prays for them. Not just while they're in his class, but he, he prays for them for the rest of his life. And he dies doing so. This type of story could be told over and over and over again. Unknown brothers and sisters who love their fellow brothers and sisters. And that love drives them to pray for them. This is the fuel that God has used to drive the church throughout the past 2,000 years. And my prayer is that it would be the fuel that he uses to drive this church as well. A love for others that produces within us passionate and deliberate and consistent prayer for others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us, that exhorts us, that corrects us, that admonishes us, that disciplines us. And Father, we all probably can confess that we we need that this morning, all of those things in the area of our love for others and also in the area of our prayer for others. So Father, I pray that you would produce in us a love for our fellow Christians. A love that longs to be with each other. A love that longs to to be a blessing to each other. A love that rejoices at the faithfulness that we see in the lives of our fellow Christians. Father, a love that that drives us to prayer. Love is not enough. All we need is not love. But we need your love. We need that love to drive us to prayer. To intercede to call upon you to do what only you can do. Father, may you build this church through unseen prayer warriors who rise early, who stay late, who, as they're driving, you are in prayer for each other. Father, may this church have a testimony of, like that that church there in Ireland, of men and women and, and missionaries who are called and sent out. And behind the scenes, there's faithful prayer warriors carrying them in prayer. Father, there's much we think is important. But Father, there's only few things that are truly of urgency. Father, may we, may you call us to prayer this week, Father. May we, may we pray more for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to stand. John's gonna sing a, lead us in a chorus, but let me send you out with a benediction, or let me say a benediction, then we'll send you out with a song. But the benediction is, the benediction of Paul in these in these word, verses. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, so that He may establish your hearts 
blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen.